एक मिनट रुक जाओ रेडी होने दो चलो ये कर लेते हैं अक्षय हाय दिस इज सौरभ एंड यू आर लिस्निंग टू द फाउंडर थीसिस पॉडकास्ट वी मीट सम ऑफ द मोस्ट सेलिब्रेटेड फाउंडर्स इन द कंट्री एंड वी वॉन्ट टू लर्न हाउ टू बिल्ड अकॉर्न I always wanted to learn something and make an impact in real world. Uh, I remember going in Bangalore to all these Kannadai speaking brokers and you know half the time they won't really get like what I'm talking about and I was horrible in I think making a pitch as well. My first pitch was you take one third and the other guy take one third and I take one third and they said oh yeah and it was struggle really. It was terrible struggle and then other people told me that you get into this business it might be dangerous for you. <laughs> you have no idea. You you, you may take this one third to your grave. First time founders are rarely successful and second time founders are generally successful. There is no better example of this than the story of Ambrish Gupta, founder of Nolarity. Nolarity is among the biggest SaaS enterprise out of India with a presence in 65 countries across the globe. Ambrish, the boy from Kanpur who dreamt of building a successful business is now one of the most celebrated B2B tech startup founders in India. Here's Ambrish talking about his life in IIT, early startup days of Nolarity, expanding it and finally letting it go. And don't forget to subscribe to the show through hdsmartcast.com, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Ambarish Gupta. I'm the founder of Nolarity and the founder CEO of Basis Vector. Nolarity is the largest cloud telephony company in Asia, based in Singapore, and a lot of customers in the India and Middle East. Basis Vector is a private equity firm based in New York and uh, invests in US and Canadian businesses as a buyout fund. I'd like to start with uh, you growing up in a business family in Kanpur. So, what are your memories of childhood? Are you strong? Like, did you like? No, like was that in the blood, so to say? I, I think it was in blood. <laughs> I grew up in a business family, both my mother's side and father's side. Um, so everybody is a businessman or businesswoman. You know, these jute bags that you use to pack grains, sugar and all those things. We were merchants of that. You know, we were distributed and we were based in Kanpur, which is a small city in UP. And that's what I, I, I grew up you know, doing. I have sat on the shop buying seven rupees. gunny bags and and selling at 11 so i understand you know what what revenue is what profit is at very very early stage of my life i i was never excited about it i didn't really find business to be at least that business to be very naturally exciting so i was kind of odd man out in my family to want to be a scientist you know i remember my family asking me you know why do you want to be a scientist or you do a job you know there's a saying in hindi called uttam vidya madhyam dhan nichakri bhignidan basically translates into the best thing is to get education the second best is to business the uh, second last resort is to do a job and then last resort is to beg 
<laughs> saying, you know, why are you moving down on what you want to do in your life? But for me, intellectual excitement was very important. That is how I ended up doing physics. I had a stint with uh, Bhava Patropic Research Center, Bark, but I ultimately ended up being in IIT Kanpur. So, Bark stint, you're saying was like when you were in school, at that time, you had exposure to Bark, like before IIT Kanpur. Yeah, before IIT Kanpur. I mean, they have like all these programs where people can come down. You can, I think I have. I won some kind of scholarship or something and then they gave me a book and they kind of showed me cool stuff that is available in the atomic research and I kind of what exposed to it I didn't really do anything the I mean the way things happen is your high school your 12th standard and then you kind of trying to figure out like which college you go into I had a lot of interest in science and technology and like IIT was the thing that everybody was looking to get into and I really like JE preparing for it I think it was really nice uh, the exam was very nice and I got in I had a good rank um, and you know if you have good rank you take computer science <laughs> this is how I ended up doing computer science in one of the IITs IIT Kanpur which year 2000 uh, so 96 2004 years BTech how were those four years for you matlab was it like life changing experience It was amazing. It was amazing. The most vivid memories of IIT Kanpur. I mean, I was in Kanpur. It's not Bangalore. It's, it's kind of sleepy town, right? Not, not much is happening in Kanpur. There used to be kind of amazing uh, mills, but, but those mills kind of died down thanks to various kind of government policies. And it's kind of a little bit sad situation, really, you know, at least when I was in Kanpur. IIT Kanpur is like, it's like a gem in the middle of all these disasters. Um, you know, you come into IIT Kanpur, as soon as the, you cross the gates, they is a serenity there is like there's a peacock for them you know there there's kind of people walking around focus on education like almost like harry potter really uh, when you go from kanpur to iit kanpur very nice feeling you know i remember the first time i went to iit kanpur and i think it was something related with j it's been long time i remember there's something called in iit kanpur there's a called uh, faculty building which is where there are a bunch of canteens and you have all these phd's come down to have a chai this very nice and expensive chai and this kind of kind of in the middle of the gardens right um, it's a v- very nice place and i i remember i going there and and i glanced that there was a guy and there's a girl uh, sitting there you know guy had a book on his hand and there's a girl on the side and i looked at it and there was like it was like morning right so there was like light 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 sunshine you know shining on them and, and there was a garden in front and they were sitting on the staircases um and having chai and i said this is perfection this is everything a man needs <laughs> you know the, this is where i need to be um <laughs> the, the, the chai the book the amazing conversation the girl um and the staircases and then nice nature and environment around you it's just amazing really place to be so when you joined iit were you like able to speak in english because i assume school mein zyada english to hoti nahi hogi I, I was not actually and for my situation was actually even somewhat different because i went to uh, this is a school called pandit dindayal upadhyay sanatan dharm vidyalaya which is like not hindi hindi medium it's it's intensely hindi medium like we worshiped a lord uh, hanuman every day for an hour it, it was almost frowned upon to speak in english even though it was very good college considered one of the top two colleges um in up um and we had up state exams so it was very very high quality class but we were not allowed to speak in english um so when i went into iit you know i had a little bit of a problem i wrote english well uh, but i had no experience of the classes where you know somebody is speaking english and trying to explain it first year i struggled a little bit because it's when you're used to 
teachers speaking in Hindi. And, you know, in Pandit Dindya Lupadhyay, our teachers were called Acharya. So your Acharya is speaking in Hindi versus you jump into, you know, very Americanized um, English-speaking world of IIT Kanpur. You know, I had a little bit of problem, but the way I kind of survived was I just studied um, books and I could understand written English much better um, and I could write well um, as well. So, you know, kind of, it just kind of worked out. I could imagine many of the people who came from Hindi medium school, uh, they would have struggled. I was not um, alone. There were a whole bunch of people from UP and Bihar who had come down. But everybody kind of survived because it was it was almost, I would imagine, like roughly probably 30-40% of the people did not really speak um, uh, English or came from English medium school. What are the other memories from IIT Kanpur? First year was very intense, incredibly intense and disappointing both. So when you take JE, you kind of really understand gist of what you are learning in physics and mathematics and, and chemistries. And one of the greatest experiences of my life have been preparing for JE, like some of the great theorems that I learned in calculus, in thermodynamics, in chemistry. You know, I still remember, you know, 20, 25 years, I still remember, you know, it's just really aha moments of like, wow, this knowledge for the sake of knowledge, you know, you learn something. But when you go into IIT, it's not taking a pause and deep diving into things in the first year it is taking um, a survey of like a very broad area like you just don't go deep you just fly through things and that's not my style so for me you know if i get into something i really want to understand it and we kind of flew through many of these things so it was intense because there's so much covered also what ended up happening is in computer science everybody there were 22 people in my class um and everybody had a rank which was less than 100 everybody was intensely intelligent and competitive so what ended up happening is you're used to being smart um, in whatever group you are in and now suddenly you get into a situation we are just like you know everybody is like probably more smart than you so it's a little bit disorienting when you get into IIT, um, especially in that department. So, you know, I went through a little bit of that dis- disorientation and my regular techniques of like winning were not really not worked out. Many times I would just kind of study and, you know, if I study properly, I would beat everybody else. Here, you, if you study properly, you know, you would be like maybe top one third. <laughs> so it's a, it, it was a little disorientating and getting used to uh, the situation and everybody worked very hard. Overall, amazing memories of first year. Couldn't recreate in IIT. Main motivation of being in IIT, which is the book, the chai, the girl, or sitting on the staircases. But it was amazing experience in first year. So towards fourth year, uh, what what had you become, and you know what were you thinking of your life after IIT? Um, I became little. I would say little disillusioned. The fourth year or by third year, actually, I would say. I loved the group that I was in. It was everybody's incredibly intelligent. They kind of pushed me to think about things in in a next level. And that was a really amazing experience. I think that the peer group is incredibly powerful. What do you call it? They're very honest. Like It's extremely meritocratic and it's very honest. You get to see what you're not good at and they'll kind of tell you. And you kind of discover what you like and what you're good at. And in, in this group, if you're good at something, right, you actually you're really good at it. So, for example, I was very good at physics. 
and I was very good at anything which was visual and theoretical. By by four years of IIT, knew that I was not going to be in academia because while we were doing cutting edge work in IIT, the word outside IIT had like absolutely no impact of all the cutting edge that, that was happening in the campus. There's a village called Nankari. And while we were working on amazing theoretical computer science stuff in Nankari, you know, people did not have bicycles. I always wanted to learn something and make an impact in real world. And uh, academia didn't really look like that kind of things. I also, in my BTEC thesis, I did something. Which I spent quite a bit of time um, in, in the last year. I knew that as soon as the, the thesis is finished, it will be thrown away. Um, it's, it's no use. So I think those all these such people, you write a research paper and it's kind of just useless. After that, that didn't really go very well with me. I, I think that is the reason I had an option to go to PhD, but I dropped that and I decided to go and see the world. So when I came out of IIT, we were all getting jobs in US. So we got a job. I got a, I took up a job in US as well. But you know, there was some time. So I ended up traveling and, and living in Germany. Uh, as a researcher, worked as a researcher in one of the labs, and kind of that way I kind of saw Europe. As in, uh, tell me, like, which company did you join exactly? And that company sent you to Germany, or did you take up another job? No, so we got a job. So we we were graduating in 2000. We all got a job in 1999 in, in a company, in US company in Valley called Electronics for Imaging. It's like they hired six people, six engineers from computer science department. And we all knew that we'll, we're going to US, um, to the Valley, which is like the Mecca of computer science for everyone. But I, while it was, hap- it, it, it was supposed to happen in 2000, October, you know, when we would fly. So I had time. I took up an internship in Germany, a place called Fraunhofer Institute of Computer Graphics. And I said, you know, I'll go see the world, right? So you go live in Germany and in Fraunhofer Institute of Computer Graphics. I traveled quite extensively. I, so there was three months project internship, which I finished in one month, less than a month. Actually, I, I finished first 20 days. I didn't do anything. Um, after that, 15 days, I finished it. Um, the three month project. Then they challenged me, telling me that, you know, it was a fluke. Um, so I took up another internship and finished in 10 days as well. <laughs> so so they, they, they remember IIT Kanpur now. And after that, I said, you know what, I'm going to learn German and I'm not going to do more coding. And I traveled. In Germany, what you can do is you can, at the time at least, you know, you, you can do, get something called a weekend pass, uh, which is a pass that you can buy for, I think, $2, 3 and it's meant for students. Um, and then you can take unlimited number of trains for all weekend, but all slow trains. And I wanted to see Germany, so you know I would pack stuff with me, and we were not getting much money; we were very poor. So we would kind of go pack stuff. I I would buy some milk. I'm vegetarian, so buy some milk and um, and some pizza. Um, and um, I would travel in these trains all weekend, and I would sleep on the railway stations, which are very clean. So you know, it's just perfectly all right. Uh, that's why I did. You know, we would just leave on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and come back on Sunday. Fascinating experience. Um, Post Germany, I come back and. The company that was going to send me to US, there was visa was getting delayed, so they gave me an offer to go to Australia. Uh, while visa was for US was getting ready, and I said why not? So I went to Australia, and I lived there for a year. Fortunate to travel around Australia, you know, Perth, Melbourne, Sydney. I lived in Sydney, not Sydney for a year, and then went to US. Uh, yeah, I was in US in 2001 to 2003 working for EFI, but I didn't really enjoy um, the work here that much because I couldn't see while I was an engineer working on uh, device drivers and embedded system and all those things. You get stuck into kind of a box um, writing code and I've always been the kind of guy who wanted to see the impact of what I did. Um, so if I was not able to see like where my code is getting shipped and what it is doing, it was not enjoyable for me. So 2003, I left US, come back to India to start my first company. I was in Bangalore. I had $40,000 
the idea was very similar to what housing.com did, which is apartment search on internet. It was actually even before Magic Tricks. That was not a very good time in VC industry in India. You know, there's no, there not many VCs. No, there was no ecosystem, anything. So I kind of just spent my own money to try to launch this company in Bangalore. And um, I remember I first lived in KP Dagar and then I was living in um, Malishwaram. And, you know, it's just kind of tried out. And a very painful journey in trying to build a company. You know, the there's no help. There's no employee wants to join you co-founder that I kind of came to you to India with kind of changed his mind within a month. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't sound right to me. You know? <laughs> Bye-bye. You know, now you're on, on, on your own. Um, you're already taking this step. Your co-founder was also with you in US? Yeah. So we both decided that we'll come back to India to start this company. And while he was in the, in the plane, he changed his mind. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we landed. I landed without a co-founder. <laughs> the, the, everything that could go wrong. And then, you know, it's just... It was, now you, we know that, you know, you, there's so much ecosystem, you can get help, you know, your people who have done this before, you can listen to them. Just nothing like that at the time. I remember trying to get an office and spending three months trying to get an office. And what I got, I did not have any idea. So basically, I got a shop floor um, as an office. <laughs> you basically go and sit. It's like absolutely no idea of business. You know, this is, this is how you start. Uh, at least I started. We built up a technology very fast. What was your website called? called Inventica Solutions. The website was inventicars.com and we basically were classified for apartment listing because when I landed in Bangalore, what I found was like, why is everybody running around? Uh, there were like a whole bunch of brokers, real estate brokers everywhere. So I said, why is everybody running around? Why don't we just put this information, take a picture, put this information on the internet? Um, and then, which is what we did in the US. So, you know, I just copy-paste this idea, this will work. But I couldn't execute it. I just, I, I didn't really know anything about building up a business, running the business. Yeah. I spent one and a half years trying to do this. So what did you try to do? You The product you built yourself? Or you had a vendor who built it? and whatever. No, no, no. I mean, it's a computer science graduate. You know, of course, you're not going to ask a vendor. This is the only thing that I knew. So I coded it. I went to a university close by and then got a bunch of interns uh, who worked with me for very low pay um, because I didn't really have money and there was no investment extensively aggressively looking for a co-founder got one of my old friend uh, get interested and kind of worked with me for a few months but he wasn't really wasn't wasn't into it there were three of us in u.s who got disillusioned with being a software engineer in u.s it was me within two years there's another friend of mine named somidhi paul um who actually is in bangalore now running his running company somidhi was not interested so he was also with me the IIT kanpur computer science graduate he wanted to become a, a photographer or make movies and wanted to get rid of engineering, like not want to do engineering. And he came back and he traveled almost six, eight months um, all over India and Middle East, uh, India and Southeast Asia, traveling like a hippie. And then he come back um, uh, and then I said, you know what, dude, I need help. Um, <laughs> my co-founder has left, you know, can you join? And he kind of just joined in, but just joined it for fun. Um, I don't think he had much of a commercial interest. And then third good friend of mine was also an engineer in NVIDIA in, in U.S., and he left and he came back and he wanted to change the political system in India. And uh, his name Pallav, who ended up being my co-founder in Olarity later, he started a political consulting firm using data to drive the political outcome. So um, I was part of this, a little bit part of this group who were willing to take risk to do what we felt was right rather than what everybody was doing. And you already had the real estate listing site idea in US or you came to India with an idea that and then my my I don't know my idea was different. Um, so I had come to India with the idea of um, 
actually, which is also got implemented, which was quite ahead of time, which was, you know, why do people have to line up to get train tickets, um, various kind of tickets, people buy movie tickets and all those tickets. So we had created an ATM kind of machine, um, a kiosk where you can, uh, and everybody had phone at that time. So I was, people were getting phone or SMS. So the idea was you can buy um, ticket uh, over phone and then you will be sent out a OTP kind of thing or some kind of code that you can punch in in the kiosk and you'll get the ticket. So you don't have to stand in the line in, in the movie theaters and so what given that I I was interested in embedded systems and device drivers and those things. So I created the kiosk. Right? I remember doing all this research and building up the kiosk. And I came to India with a kiosk that I will get this kiosk installed in various places. Um, but um, by the time I landed, my co-founder changed, had a change of heart. And um, while kiosk idea was there, and I stayed with a friend for, for two months. And while I was staying with a friend, I was looking for like where to stay, uh, where to rent and stay in. And I said, wow, <laughs> rental place is so difficult. Um, so, I mean, why just have a website where, so, and this looks easier idea to me uh, than installing kiosk in railway stations and, and movie theaters. So I thought, let's just pursue this, even that anyway, my co-founder is gone there. So I started executing this. So what was the problem? Like listings users to look at listings? <laughs> so the, I, I mean the business model was bad it was not the model of it's going to be a website and we'll get the listing and people come the idea there was that the real estate brokers have properties but they don't have customers right and the customers need property uh, that they want to get but you know the guy that they're chatting with you know may not be the guy who has that property that they're looking for so if we create some kind of broker network, which is actually what Pallav has done, which is the one broker has customer, another broker has property. And then if they sh- kind of share the customer and property, the deal happens. And what we wanted was broker makes some money, the customer broker makes some money, and real, real estate broker makes some money, uh, the property broker makes some money, and we get some cut in the middle. So what we needed to do in this case was go and talk with the brokers and convince them that it should become part of this broker network. And uh, I remember going in Bangalore to all these Kadadai speaking brokers and you know, half the time they won't really get like what I'm talking about. And I was horrible in, I think, making a pitch as well. My first pitch was, you take one third, and the other guy take one third, and I take one third. And they said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was struggle, really. You know, it's, it's a, it was a terrible struggle. I remember I had a bike going from point A to point B um, in Bangalore. It's, it's kind of just nice at the time. You know, it was not as trafficy as it is today. It was, it's a life very much on the edge, right? It was no income. Did not know anybody in Bangalore. This was the first time I was in Bangalore. Just no employees, no investors, no advice. Going to real estate brokers and giving them a pitch, which really was not working. And then other people told me that you get into this business, it might be dangerous for you. <laughs> you have no idea. You, you, you may take this one third to your grave. <laughs> so, and uh, I think there's another thing. You know, when I came back to India, I wanted to kind of give myself one and a half years, two years kind of time period. The plan B was also I'll go do an MBA. And um, and if it doesn't work out, go to MBA with some experience in business. And that was always at the back of my mind. You you had an escape option, basically. Yeah, you had an escape option. You don't go to war with your boats in the back. You have to burn your boat. I didn't burn my boats. It was like fun stuff. Like this is a kind of a resorty stuff. And you know, out of college, uh, you immediately went out of India to all these countries. And then you 
kind of not really feel connected to the country. You kind of missed out of what the real India is. IIT Kanpur was anywhere ivory tower, right? Before that, you're sitting in, um, your parents are taking care of you. So you can never really experience India, India as an adult. This was me experiencing India, India as an adult. I would say that is how it was really for me. I would say overwhelming reason would be like there was no support system and, you know, I did not know anything about business. But I would say 10-20% would be maybe I didn't really care that much either. You know, I had an, I had an escape route. So you had no money, then you took a loan to do your MBA? Because you would have spent your money on this business, no? We got a scholarship. Um, so I cracked GMAT quite well. I went to CMU. So I also got married. I was dating my wife at the time. In Bangalore? In in US, my wife was Chinese. I got married in, in India uh, and I had a court marriage. CMU gave scholarship and whole bunch of support. The whole reason for me to getting into MBA school was I was meeting a lot of VCs. Uh, actually, a few VCs, not more, a lot, two, three VCs who would not do anything less than $5 million. Um, so, But I quite liked the VC job. I thought, well, oh, this is cool because you're kind of close to, this is safe. Uh, <laughs> you don't get pushed around like the way my one last one and a half years of experience, close to kind of exciting stuff, which is using technology to make real world impact. I remember he telling me, you know, well, but you don't have business experience. I said, well, what better business experience you want than, you know, somebody who's struggling on the streets of Bangalore? He said, no, you, know, you, need, you need proper business experience. Why don't you have an MBA? So I said, okay. So that was actually my idea to get an MBA was to get into VC. And while I was in CMU, I realized, well, VC invests a little money, four or five million dollars, ten million dollars. There's something called P, uh, where you invest hundreds of million dollars. So, you know, if you're in the business of making a large scale impact with what you've learned, why not get into P? So move towards P. When you try to get into P, you either get a total financial analyst or you get some operating experience. But there's a route from McKinsey. So, you know, I thought I should go into McKinsey first and spend two, three years there and then go into P. You had a small stint at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton also, no? Before McKinsey. Yeah, so I mean, Booz, I mean, you do internships. Yeah, so that was Booz Allen and then, then two years with McKinsey. And that was like amazing education um, on business. And I, I think very fond memories of that uh, two plus two years. I had a lot of interest in macroeconomics, for example, the currency theories, the negotiations, you know, the, the organization theories. It was very intellectually very exciting and it was very real because the people who taught were literally the people who were doing stuff as well. So, so McKinsey was like strategy consulting kind of a role. Yeah, so McKinsey, I did strategy consulting, Fortune 50 companies. Literally, you advise the CEOs on transformation of uh, their businesses. And um, I work with bank and insurance firm. So you're literally advising 2007-2009 time was, you know, the recession era. The, the banks and insurance firms were a little bit struggling. Many times, they would invite McKinsey to come and do the analysis to, number one, see where they are. Uh, and number two, have them get out of uh, this very difficult time. So, you know, as part, would be part of the team, very intense work very very intense work you know i think mckinsey was incredibly intense work i, I would say mckinsey were more intense for me than alarity um in terms of working hours you know the 14 hours 12 hours you know absolutely left hand center with it i remember being on the phone call from the hotel room and dozing off during the phone call and she was so tired not leaving my hotel room for seven days because you know you're part of a very intense due diligence after seven days realizing that there is a window in the room because you did not realize there is a window in the room you don't let i remember not letting the, the hotel guys to kind of come in not changing the bed sheet because it would disturb you so you know it's the same bed sheet seven days just eat and then somebody comes pickles up the, the food and just focus on work 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 uh, 15 hours a day extremely exciting that exposed a lot of industries um and the u.s is very fast-paced i would say surrounded by very intelligent and very hard-working people 
um so i think cmu was a really a cakewalk for me <laughs> it was it was very easy but mckinsey was um intense uh, <laughs> in mckinsey not only people were smart they worked also very hard so by the end of two years did you get like burnt out and wanted to move on or what happened it it was a little burnout as well i mean i always wanted to be in private equity and do something which is not just consulting advice but beyond um for me that was a stepping step to do something else i could not see myself as a management consultant because management consultant is just advice advice is is up to the client to take it i think one theme that you see is that i want to make an impact i want to do it i i tried to get into private equity at that time but you know banking sector was not doing very well so i decided you know what let's go back and try to start another company <laughs> me that's how nolati got started so your your wife was okay with it because i mean she wouldn't have found india as comfortable as us no doubt see i mean she was okay uh, she was very supportive what ended up happening was that you no know, bit my first experience that i knew that startups fail 90% of time i had i had imagined that this will fail as well so i had a full plan that when it will fail what will i do when it will fail so i have 2 3 years of experience when i'm struggling and then by the time what economy will be better and i'll come back you know and do something in private equity yeah and then with this i have more you know real experience i had not planned for it to succeed <laughs> so because i mean logically speaking that was a right plan but it was like if it works out then something will work out right around it it worked out When you came to India, did you have a business in mind that this is what I want to do? Yeah, no, no, it was all clear. Uh, this time, I didn't really make the mistake of the first time. Uh, I learned from the first mistakes. When in McKinsey, we use something called eFax, which is faxed email service. Faxed email is you send fax, you get an email, basically a PDF document. I look at the income statement. This is publicly traded company, and it's a thirty percent EBITDA. From a strategic point of view, commodity product like this, which is very simple commodity product, you shouldn't really have such a high EBITDA. Uh, I was very surprised, and then I dug in, and I found out the reason it is high beta is because phone numbers are very sticky. Once you buy a phone number, which is a fax number, you know you don't change it even if it's like three, four dollars more per year per month. For example, they were selling at twelve, the company was selling at nine dollar per per month, and you know would you change your phone number to save three dollars? No, you know. So, so I said, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, and this high gross margin is like eighty percent gross margin business. So it's the eighty percent gross margin high recurring revenue business. and india didn't have it <laughs> i said okay no product market risk uh, high gross margins high level of profitability and we have a precedence of somebody already doing it so let's launch equivalent in india and we call it superfax um this also super reception by the way started so we launched superfax and it was very easy to do because i was i literally coded it in like you know few days this whole thing and um, it worked and i said okay we are in the business um so we took telephone line in india and i partnered with my partner you know pallav who was already running a business so second mistake don't get somebody who is kind of you know is also working with you i got a guy who kind of who has perseverance to to stick on for 3 4 years um running his own political consulting and he was kind of getting disillusioned with political consulting he became a partner and i was still sitting in us while we launched the company so i was very careful this time um and uh, the company started super fact didn't really take off because fax was a dying industry and nobody wanted to touch while this was happening there was this election was happening in orissa and uh, they needed to make phone calls which was very new technology fellow is a great salesman he went around and sold this idea the chief minister at the time i think it was navin patnaik um and uh, he was like a new age guy and we got an order and cash uh, from them it was like start with a bank right it was a, almost a crore rupees order we changed our technology which sent fax <laughs> to send start making phone calls and we executed this order and we made some money and then we kind of got hooked into it and efax also had e voice which is for inbound ivr so i knew that i am not going into uncharted territory you know we 
are doing something that you know others have done and proven it uh, to have built a great business. So it kind of went into that direction. E-voice and then fax was dismantled and we used that money to build up a platform, uh, Nolatis. So first platform, Nolas 1.0. Um, and uh, we hired a bunch of people from IT Guwahati. Why did you call it Nolarity? Where does the name come from? School. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a combination of two terms called knowledge and singularity. Um, so there's the whole idea. You know, if you have you seen Terminator movies? Yeah, 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 yeah. The singularity is when AI becomes as intelligent as a human. Yeah, so I'm so I'm, I I have always been interested in AI in IIT. I was doing natural language processing in 1999. I want to see technology doing something real, right? And what is more real than AI, right? AI and robotics. And I did natural language processing. And basically, natural language processing in 1999 didn't really work. Uh, is because uh, the computers are very slow and the algorithms and data were not available. There were a whole bunch of problems. Right? So I left it and moved to our system. But, you know, AI, the idea that there will be a time when you can have intelligence, which is general intelligence, similar level as um, human being. And given that software can be replicated very fast and they can improve themselves. So what you end up happening is, you know, if you have general level of intelligence um, in AI, you can have them program to improve themselves and that means they become smarter than human being and and then they are programming themselves to become even smarter so you have exponential growth in terms of intelligence happen and that's what's called singularity knowledge singularity you know at that moment um, you know one day you will have in the power of ai and uh, that is what is called knowledge singularity because that that ai will know everything you know all the data anyways it's a consumable digital format now it can read everything and it can store everything for intelligence and just being fascinated by that idea of knowledge singularity and that's how nolarity's name is knowledge singularity me and swamideep who was my first co-founder uh, in my previous company we chatted on google chat while we were coming up with a name and we come up with a name in like seven minutes. And the chat is still, I published the chat on a blog post. I said, no Larity. And he said, you know, doesn't look good. But then we kind of look at other option. And they said, oh, yeah, no Larity looks good. Let's do no Larity. And it became no Larity. And then my platform became Nolas. And, you know, employees become no Laritarians. And, you know, everything you know, it started from there. You realize how accidental these things are. You look back and you say, there was no thought. I think, I don't know why people, people to go back and kind of build up some kind of, I always knew this kind of story. It's all accidental right you're kind of bouncing from one place to another place just trying to live life as honestly as possible and just see these things just happen so uh, i want to understand better on how you uh, technologically improved what was existing before then like i remember uh, an ivr meant that you have a airtel or some somebody installing a line in your office and uh, that line probably airtel or somebody programs it so it has to be physically there. So how did you innovate on that? And, you know, can you tell me a bit about that? Like from the technology standpoint, what was the innovation that you got in? And were there other people doing the same stuff at that time? Nobody was doing it. Um, the way technology worked at that time was you installed a box in your premise. You installed a software. So you took telephone lines and you installed a box with the software attached to it. Um, so when the call came, you know, it will go into a box and it will play the IVR. But the problem with that was, and this is, and the US also had gone through that that kind of journey. Um, the problem with that was, 
you have to take a telephone line from Deltel and, and Reliance and all of these guys and you have to go buy a box and you have to make sure the box is always up and there's all call center line. So it was very error prone, very ex- very difficult technology really. 2009 also was the year that the emerging markets started providing more to the world growth than developed market. And for me to move from New York to New, to New Delhi, it was very strategic in the sense that I felt that emerging markets were the future. And I had, as an Indian sitting in the US, I had an advantage being in India and you know being able to operate there uh, because I really understood that market you know that's kind of a high level idea also the technologies which worked in the emerging markets were all cloud because cloud is cheaper much much cheaper you know you buy a box which is five thousand dollars versus you pay two hundred dollars per month right? uh, it's a pay-as-you go model um, so you don't have you know no businessmen in india have money to invest in kind of big boxes pay-as-you-go SaaS model worked um, for very cost conscious indian businesses the focus on providing service you know if you're getting paid if the if the provider is getting paid you know every month you know they have to make sure the services are high quality versus you sell a box and disappear. So you know, it's I kind of aligns the provider's interest as well. Uh, it's cheaper, almost one ton the cost. You know, everything cheap in India works, right? Because people don't have money. So you want to if you want to bring technology which has a huge impact on productivity, but it's a lower cost. So telecom was growing 100% year on year at the time. But at a very strategic level, if you think about it, there is something called derivative market theory. Derivative market theory basically says that as soon as you have a market, any one market kind of comes in, because of that market comes in, there are other derivative markets that come in. I'll give some examples right so for example it comes from the fact that you know if you have a hammer everything looks like a nail right that's another example if you have a car you will drive and if you drive look at your credit card statement you'll start spending more money on dhabas rather than you know neighborhood restaurant in second post second world war the during second world world war everybody had to win so everybody spent loads and loads of money on um, various kind of uh, weapon and uh, and war machinery right so tanks became very good during second world war um, the missile technology became massively improved in second world war the people developed organization theories around how to do very fast uh, manufacturing you know all those things because if you did not know you will be you know, you'll be looted by the other country, right? So you, it was a do or die kind of situation. So there's like loads of technological development happened during the Second World War. One of which was, you know, tank technology became very robust and very good. And Volkswagen, for example, you know, which is, you know, German car manufacturer, which Volkswagen, the German name is People's Car. It was actually Nazi Germany's tank manufacturer. Uh, they, they, they made tanks. So they used this technology to put in the cars and it was much improved technology. It's kind of you know, more efficient, you know, more power and all those things. You know, America won and, you know, Russia won. It came from Right, um, they took up the technology <laughs> and took the scientists and engineers with them. Um, and that is how, by, by the way, America's moon mission is kind of quite a bit of help, talent help from the folks who were sending missiles. The outcome of the tank technology was the people had cars and cars which could go a long distance uh, without breaking down. The cars means that people did not have to live in downtown, they can live in suburb, uh, far away from the city. So suburb kind of come into the play. Suburb means that your white pickets and you know, the all the niceties around the suburbs, you know, all those technologies started developing. So if you give every Indian a mobile phone in their hand, what are they going to do? They're going to call. <laughs> um, and um, my thesis was they're going to call business. Earlier, they couldn't reach out to business. You know, you never call Colgate or Pepsi, whoever, right, in India, because how would you reach out to the business, right? You know, you could only reach out to business, which is you can physically visit. But if somebody's sitting in Delhi, you're in Kanpur, you cannot visit them. But if you have a phone, you're going to call them. So what I expected was consumer to business phone calls will skyrocket, right? If everybody, every consumer have phone and that's what ended up happening. But business were receiving phone calls. Suddenly last year they were receiving like, you know, 100 calls per month. Today they're receiving 1000 calls per month. So how do you manage these phone calls? As soon as complexity go up, you need a business phone system to manage, you know, call routing, recording, logs, 
analytics and all the good stuff that business needs. And India didn't really have any business telephony. In India got consumer telephony, but no business telephony. So my thesis was given consumer telephony has happened, business telephony will happen, right? And I'm the one who will do it. And that's how Nolati, you know, the thesis was born. Also, my first company was consumer um, and consumer are very high risk. B2B companies are low risk because you ask money from people upfront. And one, one, one big thing that I believe is that if you ask money from people, they'll tell you the truth. So for example, if, if I, you know, come and give you my product, you know, hey, say, say, actually, you know, do you want to give it a try? This is an amazing project. We say, yeah, it looks good. You know, it's very nice. Thank you, Amrish. Right. But if I come and tell you, actually, I can use this product, but I'll charge you like $100 per month. And, you know, I need 12 months in advance. You look at it and say, dude. No, it's not $100 worth per month product. <laughs> what I what do you have built up? <laughs> Go away. You know, I'll pay $5. No, maybe not $5. Because of which B2B companies fail quickly. Because, you know, you go tell, you get truth. And then either you fix it or you don't fix it. And that way you get the signals very quickly on whether this is going to work or not work. So... This time, my idea was I'll do B2B. It's boring. It's much more, spend a lot more time building up the company, but it's a lower risk. And I was ready for lower risk situation. I wanted to reduce my risk. every. I did everything possible to mitigate my risk this time because of my first experience. You got a partner who was, you know, already running a company. So, you know, you don't have a partner who has a problem of kind of changing his mind halfway. Get into industry, which was growing very fast, rising tide raises all the boats, right? So, you know, what is going up, you know, hopefully things will be good. Not taking product market risk, quote unquote, inspired by Ring Center and e-voice right uh, to do it in Indian market very nice moat Indian PST and VoIP laws meant that you know you could not get into geographies uh, using VoIP so all the ring central e-voice use voice technologies Evo, you know VoIP technology which was not allowed in India so we built up a new kind of technology and technology I could write you know, I understood computer science very well that we could solve but that also meant that our stack was very different from them they couldn't get into US you know Indian market and they have still it's been 10 years they have not been able to get into Indian market so you know from that very very safe company uh, I started I raised half you know quarter million dollar from a bunch of friends so I was not dependent on my own savings which you know which was another reason that I stopped last time um, so everything that, that went wrong last time I kind of corrected it and uh, and that is how this company got started um, yeah we, we got very good response by 2011 we were seeing that product market fit to start happening a lot of people wanted our product and it started going uh, before so before 11 so 2009 mid of 9 you started this uh, so when did you get your first sale how long did it take you to build the product and reach first sale we started with the sale right this Naveen Patnaik thing happened in even before the company started actually 2000 May so we made the money before the company was incorporated so as soon as that sale happened you kind of like scrambled to write the code and build the product very quickly so that you can execute Actually, the sale, yeah. So sale happened before product was made. After that, me and Pallav spent 72 hours straight writing the code. Um, I did not sleep for 72 hours. Red Bull and whiskey. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that can keep you awake for 72 hours. So we wrote in Pearl, Pearl and I remember writing it. Um, and it was very weirdly written, very, very weirdly written code and uh, structure, but it worked. So can you tell me, like, cloud telephony, what is it? वो एक नंबर में कॉल गया एंड फिर वो आगे किसी और को पहुंच गया वो कैसे होता है लाइक व्हाट इज द कोड दैट यू रोट हां फंडामेंटल टेक्नोलॉजी इज योर फ्रेंड कॉल्स यू ऑन योर सेल फोन राइट एंड यू से वेट वेट रुक जाओ एंड देन यू वांट टू टॉक विद अनदर फ्रेंड यू कॉल अनदर गाय एंड ब्रिज बोथ ऑफ देम ऑन योर फोन एग्जैक्टली व्हाट दिस व्हाट यू डू लाइक यू अनदर गाय एंड नाउ 
Mr. A, who I called you, um, you and Mr. B, you, who you called, are all in the same call, right? So, cloud tele- that's what cloud telephony is fundamentally. You know, your call comes and then your IVR's uh, technology looks up into database to find out, you know, who should the call, the call should be forwarded to, connected to. And from another telephone line, you make a phone call to that person. And in the software, you bridge the phone, these two connections. How does software bridge the two connections? Because like my phone is like a piece of hardware, which is doing the conferencing. In your phone, on your cell phone, it's not the hardware which is bridging the connection. It's the software that's bridging the connection. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically merging two MP3 streams. Okay, so after the Naveen Patnaik, then you spent 72 hours to build it. Then when, when did the next sale happen after that? So Naveen Patnaik, we made good money, roughly 1.5 crore rupees. And then after that, we said, you know, how about we just give it to everyone? So we built up a reseller network. By the end of 2009, we had so much sale that our system was crashing like every second day. You know, we were in the outbound call business. And I remember that at the time, the price was 45 pesa for a pulse. We buy it. And you know, we were buying at 39. We were selling at 45 pesa per, per 30 second. And there was no margins. But during Diwali and holidays, everybody, election, everybody wanted to use our system. And and um, other times, nobody wanted it. Most of the time, nobody was using it. And sometimes, everybody wanted it. You had to take a telephone line and maintain the system. So, there was a cost associated with it. So, what we realized was this was not a good business. We need to move from outbound to inbound, which, which was recurring, which was, you know, once you take a phone number, you don't want to change it. Right? A high ghost margin because incoming calls are free. So we sometime 2010 early, we started thinking about it, uh, but really launched it in 2011. You're making money all along 2010, but it was mostly outbound business. You know, the inbound business started in 2011. And when did you do your first fundraise? One thing you did friends and family round before starting only, but like a formal fundraise. 2009 was the first fundraise, friends and family, and then 2011 was another friends and family round. And it was all convertible debt, you know, which was, I think, probably we were the first company in India to do convertible debt. 2012 January is when we raised money from Sequoia. So how easy or difficult was that, like getting Sequoia to invest? It was, I think we were a little bit lucky. Uh, our thesis was very similar to Ring Center. Sequoia had made good money in Ring Center in US. From that point of view, they said, okay, well, Ring Center kind of business in India, you know, makes sense. So I think that kind of played out. We also had quite a bit of traction. We had 500 customers by that time who were paying. Um, we had 50 people team. Um, so we were kind of reasonable scale by that time. For the backgrounds, I had understood both technology and business. Pallav was um, the IITE graduate and and, um, quite a bit of entrepreneurial experience expelled. So it was kind of a pretty good team, really, um, to start. Why did you decide to raise funds when you were, like, you told me that you were, like, cash flow positive, you were not burning. So why the need to raise funds? No, we were not cash flow positive. I mean, in the beginning, we were cash flow positive, but then we the we started out by making money. But, um, but very quickly, we said we do things properly. You know, that is where you hire engineers and, and build up systems. And then, you know, that was one-time sale and, you know, it dried out. So your revenue dropped and your um, your costs go up so we are profitable and there was really it, the interest really never was to make money really in this business for me it was making an impact and proving a point I, you know i wanted to build up the company in a vc backed way so that there is a capital so that never be constrained in terms of fulfilling the dream of building up a great business out of india so uh, post sequoia fundraise then uh, what happened after that Sequo fundraise happened when, when the VCs come, the dynamics change a little bit as well. Um, so now there's like one more person who has a certain way of looking at the world for better or for worse. 
Um, so I think you kind of a little bit adjust to that dynamics as well. And we, we grew. We grew quite well. We had a little bit of a hiccup in 2012 in the first half, I remember. But after that, we grew. We grew steadily post that. Did very, very well in 2012, 13, then 14. We raised Series B from Mayfield and Sequoia combined. Pallav left around 2013. Pallav, I think, was more early stage person. But, you know, the dynamics in early stage in a company are a little bit different where you're kind of making decisions very, very quickly changing things and all those things versus a little bit later stage where dynamics are very process oriented you know way of looking at the world and i think he was not enjoying it as much this change in dynamics especially after uh, the funding happened so you know it's a it's it was very amicable you know the he, he maintained all his equity as well and then i got one of my friends to come and join become a ceo in the company uh, to take the company forward you know and, and then it worked so, uh, what what was the revenue trajectory like? Like like when you raised from Sequoia, what what was the revenue that year? And then by the time you left, what had the revenue become? You know, how did it evolve over the years? I can't tell you that numbers, <laughs> especially now that I'm out also. But you know, I remember between Sequoia coming in and around the time I leaving, we grew sixty x and became profitable as well so i would say six years 12 to 18 pretty incredible journey you know a real business just ebitda and cash flow profitable currently no it doesn't need cash from anyone it produces cash massive growth massive growth 60x growth in six years is um, extremely rapid what was the reason for the growth like you know what's the secret behind it i mean it's, you know, i mean it's like it was successful business it was the right place right time the right technology, right pricing, support from our investors, uh, very hard work from the employees. We grew from 50 people to 400 people. Was it largely like inbound sales, like, you know, inbound inquiries uh, based? Or was it... we, did, we did both inbound and outbound. We pretty much created this market. We had to educate the market. And we educated the market. I mean, one of the reasons that you see me, I'm somewhat private person. But uh, for Nullarity, I ended up being very public personal. When I was uh, founder, running the business as CEO, we had a lot of press and uh, we got involved in a whole bunch of things. And I was very vocal and uh, talked a lot as well. And PR for us was one way to kind of have people know that we exist, not in the startup world, but in kind of general business ecosystem. And that worked very well. When people got to know that there's, there's a technology which can do so many interesting stuff, allow you to connect with your customers over communications, over phone and all those things. And this was really the only communication method available to communicate with your customers. We, we use this mechanism to have people get educated in a very inexpensive way. The people reach out to us and many times our sales team, we had 300 people sales team, 400 channel partners. Cloud telephony, we pretty much educated India uh, on what cloud telephony can do and wherever cloud telephony currently is. When did you decide to go global beyond India? It was right from the beginning. I mean, I didn't really want to build up an Indian company. I wanted to build up um, a global company which is serving, which would serve Middle Eastern and South Asian market as well, uh, all the emerging markets. And uh, our technology was well suited for those markets. Um, from India, we became a Singaporean entity sometime in 2013. So you can see very early, we wanted to be a Singaporean company because that way we would service Southeast Asian and Middle Eastern market. 
from Singapore holding company rather than sitting in India, uh, where you know, end up having a lot of friction in, in managing many of these things. You shifted base to Singapore or that was just like a... It was holding company. You know, most of business was still in India, so I mostly stayed in India. What was the split between India and uh, outside India? Like by the time you left, what, what percentage was India? I mean, it's still majority came from outside India, but very significant minority came from outside India by the time I was leaving. So the the going global expansion was again funded through the Series B and further that you did because I imagine that would have been expensive to open up offices outside and get the sales cycle running. Yeah, I mean, it was expensive. It took very long time to kind of just go through the process and making sure that we ticked all the tick marks, you know, as when we launched in Dubai, for example, or Philippines or Thailand, many of these countries. You run a business where there, there is some part which is kind of stable and running steadily. And then there's some part which is outside market, which is kind of you're doing experiments. So you kind of have to balance out by doing experiments and, and, and running a proper business as well. They're not, there should not be all experiments because then you don't know what is going to work on. You kind of just keep burning money. And it should not be all boring, just kind of regular business because then it's not good either. So uh, 2018, you decided to move out of nullarity. What prompted that? It's, it was a long time, really. Very, very long time time you know if i want to do business i would have be doing business you know selling jute bags <laughs> in in kanpur right um, i am not you know that kind of person you want to build something which makes an impact but you know once it is kind of self-sustaining and kind of doing things by yourself why would you just sit there and, and waste the time um, also when the companies get big they do not want too many changes like you think to be very stable so you want less change and i am not i'm not i'm a change agent and there are a whole bunch of other ideas that I have because of which basic sector started. Okay, so how did you handle the transition? Like, did you find your own replacement or, you know, how did that happen? Because, I mean, you are the CEO and founder and for you to leave also, I mean, from a PR angle also would have been risky. And, you know, so how did you manage that? I mean, this happens all the time, pretty much a little bit given uh, and you know it's kind of both side really many cases doesn't happen many cases you know but most of the cases most of the time it happens it's just the work become very different from you know what you were doing um, when you started off the company and, and building up the company from pr point of view it's not a big deal yeah, everybody's seen is you know this done industrial situation in terms of hiring it's exactly the same you hire people and get them not as a CEO position, maybe some other position and give them a try. If it works, then you kind of just inch them forward to kind of give them more power. That's how it works. Um, so you want to make it a gradual process. So uh, is basis vectors a, a way to return to your original dream of being in a PE? <laughs> yeah, well, so I mean, originally I wanted to work in a PE. Now I'm running a PE. Um, I would say I always believe in that thesis the in, in a PE form you can make much larger impact it's a you know you have multiple ceos now and you know, are working in the portfolio company it's a much larger impact uh, that you can make it's less operational than what nullity for example running your own business and it's kind of very natural stepping stone really for me it's a little bit going back what i was planning to do um, as well so how did you get basis vector off the ground <laughs> i think i now have so much credibility I am one of the few people in the world who have run low-cost, large-scale SaaS companies. I mean, the first time was starting companies difficult. Now you are like a proven thesis. So it's a lot less difficult. Tell me a bit more on how it operates. Like how does a PE or a VC fund operate? Like 
you find uh, HNIs and uh, institutional investors who will give you money and let you invest it for them? And like, how does that whole process happen? Yeah, it was something like this, you know, you know, exactly. So, you know, initially you'll find people who you already knew and then you take their money and then you'll find people who have bigger chunk of money, right? You have to have some investment experience as well that you can demonstrate. Uh, whatever thesis that you have, I have so much operating experience. Most of the VCs, especially in India, don't know, don't have any operating experience. What end up happening is that uh, these people, they sit in front of LP, they somehow be able to answer the question of how they will be able to demonstrate be able to make a good investment um, is by showing the investment prowess. For me, the thesis end up being very different. When I sit in front of somebody with money, I can tell that, you know, I'm going to get very much involved and see, look what I built. Spend a, spend a decade doing it and everybody knows this and you can go and check. Um, so, and most of the time they already know. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have a conversation. They know that this guy understands what he's talking about deeply. And then I understand. So McKinsey US is, um, is a big brand and it's a kind of big stamp in terms of you know, understand business in general and investment world in general. So it's kind of just combine these two. And um, out of five, ten, you know, somebody will give you money. And there's a lot of money in the world. Uh, so it's a chasing the right places to get invested. You as a capital allocator, you know, helping facilitate that. It's not It's not like you're begging anything. You're basically providing a service. They, they need to get return on their money for their investors or their also fund managers and they do not know how to make their seven eight percent you know you go there and then and make it possible for them so as an angel investor what are some of the companies you backed in india and what was the reason to back those companies like no i mean i've done, done a bunch of angel investments but um, not done and not not planning to do so uh, what makes you invest in a company? Is it like the uh, recommendation matters a lot or is it like you're impressed by the team or do you look at the market size that they're addressing? Or... These are all B2B SaaS companies. Uh, they come to me. I knew through some network and um, I just gave them some of my personal money. Um, so there's a company called Infido. There's a company called Easycom, HireXP, Sunstone Business School. Um, these are a few examples of the companies that, that, that I invested in. Team, thesis, market size, you know, all those things. The way I would think about, um, you know, starting my own business, you know, you would look about, you look at whether there is the team will push through or not. Do they have all the complementary skill set? I am not an angel investor believer. From a commercial reason point of view, the angels are called angels because it's a money down the drain. <laughs> That's why they call angels, right? You know, they should not expect any return. People do angel investment because of fun. Angel doesn't have a thesis. There's, there's no method to madness around angel investment. You meet a guy, you say, oh, I like this guy. He's doing something. I want to stay connected. Here's someone. Angel investment as an investment vehicle the only thesis that works is spray and pray. Um, that's not something exciting really. There's no intellectual excitement in, in spray and pray. What does it take to be a founder of a startup that scales up well? Is it like just being lucky or is there a science behind it? And, you know, are you able to spot, okay, he's a founder who will scale up a startup? I think before you become a founder, you have to be a good leader. And before you are a good leader, you have to be a good human being. And before you become a good human being, you have to know who you are. So there's a little bit of judge. Otherwise, loads of bullshit. Lot amount of bullshit is floating around. Why do people want to be founders? How come just 10 years back, nobody wanted to be founders? How come, what has happened just now? It's because people are watching on TV, on the newspaper, youngish people getting loads of money and fame. And they're saying, oh, this sounds cool. I should do it as well. That's the worst possible 
possible reason to want to be a founder. But that's what 90% of people are doing. It. It's just a cool thing. The way it was in, it's a cool thing to go to US and get a green card in US uh, just 20 years back or become an engineer or doctor was a cool thing. And then there was a consulting was a cool thing. Uh, the problem is that, you know, if you don't intrinsically like what you're doing, you're not going to be very good at it. And um, in other jobs, you know, you can be not very good at something and you can still survive. If you're a founder where everything is already, index already stacked against you like so high, not enjoying it or not being very good at it is a death knell. It will kill you. Only source of happiness when you're running a company or when you're a founder, if you end up kind of raising investment and, you know, unlikely chances of raising investment and growing is going to be your own sense of internal satisfaction that you're doing what you like to do, right? That's the only source of happiness. And if that is also not there, you did it because your buddy who you know who raised investment from somebody else and look how cool he looks. That's why I'm doing it. You're not going to succeed because you'll not be able to pull 15 hours. You'll burn out very quickly. You know, you will not do everybody's dirty laundry. This is, unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to hear this. This is a hard path. Figuring out yourself. People can smell confidence or lack of confidence as a leader, right? You want people to come and work for you uh, at half the cost, half, half the pay, and then hope something will happen. You know, people who you want you want to go to angel investors or investors and give you money uh, you want to go to customers and give them your half-baked product and then they want you know they should buy your product well good luck you know you have to have confidence and the confidence comes from knowing yourself what you want to do and what you will take the bullet for you're, you're 18 20 year old you graduate from the college you never made a decision in your life you know you've always followed what your parents said or you know your, your peer group said so you never you can't have confidence until you try out things and fail there are people, of course, right, who in the college, they have made their own decisions and they're very self-aware and then they're kind of doing things their own way. The, I think this path of you know knowing what you want, having the confidence, and then once you have a confidence, you're quite comfortable failing. You know, screw it. You know, I'll, I'll fail. I'll try it again. Because anyway, there's nothing else that I want to do. So I'll just do it. You Maybe you'll fail. Maybe you'll succeed, right? But at least you can execute. If you don't have that, it's difficult. In the first couple of years of Nolarity, how hard did you work? Like, did was it like McKinsey hard with, you know, like 12 hour, 15 hour days? Or did you have better work-life balance? I, at number one, I hate the term work-life balance, you know, um, because the work-life balance term presumes that you don't like your work. So it's like if I ask you, um, hey, you know, uh, the, the Akshay, I'll give you gold and I'll give you silver, right? So, uh, will you want to balance out like how much gold you have and how much silver you have? You'll have all gold. So, uh, you come in, Akshay comes a smart guy. He takes like, I, I said you can take 100 kilograms of gold and silver in whatever proportion. You come back and you say, you know what? I'm taking 100 kilograms of gold. I said, Akshay, what kind of stupid person are you? You did not do silver gold balance, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you'll say, you, what you will say is, that, well, I don't want balance. I want all gold. Like, why would I want to have silver? Right? In the same way, it's a work-life balance. You know, if if you are doing what you're liking to do, but what you really want to do, um, why would you? I can understand you, you biological need. You need to eat, you need to do other things, and then you need to sleep, right? I can understand those things because otherwise you cannot work also. It's not like I'm not saying that you should not have it. I'm saying that if you want it, that means what you're doing is not what you wanted to do. So please stop it and do something else. Yeah, so um, so I think work-life balance to, to your question on Olatis, you know, for six months, we had all engineers sleep in the office. We did not have night off and it smelled. It smelled very bad. And I mean, even you were sleeping there, was it? 
Yeah, yeah. You would have like three o'clock meetings, conversations. You know, all those kind of things happen. You know, we, we were very intense when we started out. Um, I I was doing some project with um, Microsoft at the time, so um, I literally had like four hours sleep at the time. I was working twenty hours a day. In the morning, we needed money as well, so in the morning I'll work for Microsoft. And the rest of the twelve hours, I would work on Nuleti idea. And then I was in US in Seattle. The team was in India, so I would stay up all night. And then daytime, I would go to work. You know, a founder. If there is a founder who is unwilling to put in this level of hard work and effort uh, for whatever reason, should that person even think of becoming a founder? I mean, what is the meaning of becoming a founder? What is the meaning of becoming becoming founder? Means what you want to start a company, correct? Right? I mean, that's why I understand. Now, um, starting a company, there are various intensity level of the companies that you can start. The question that you should ask is, why are you wanting to start a company? What, what is the reason you want to start a company? Hmm? Now, if the reason is money, you want money, then you know there are specific kind of companies you can start, or you can you can take up a particular job which will give you a lot of money. If you want fame, then there are specific kind of companies or certain job professions you can take which will give you fame for example you can become you can try to get into media you know that will give you fame so i mean the question that you ask is what, what do people interestingly want and i don't know why people don't want to talk about this it's all very sensible choices men women want money power fame you know all the good stuff in life right you are here for a couple of decades you will die out right so might as well have joy you know whatever god has made available to the mankind but you have to be clear like what you want now when you want these things you can't have all three because just very difficult to get so you basically kind of plan out like you say prioritize you say oh i want money more maybe power a little bit less and then fame even less you know even nobody knows me and i am kind of a wealthiest man and i'm very happy and you introspect and you say okay, this is what i want actually sacrifice fame you want you want to focus on one thing because that itself is difficult once you decide then you have other choices available you can take a job you can become politician you can go into media you know all those things decision tree takes takes you to starting company why a startup there are a whole bunch of other companies that you can start you know so let's say you say oh i want money money because of money reasons i want to start a company let's say that be the reason i want to be a very wealthy person and then fame is maybe second for you so while i'm making money i want everybody to clap as well how amazing man i am if you're choosing that path you know there are various kind of companies you can do why start a new product you know become a microsoft or salesforce partner and most of people coming from technology background they'll do very well there are other franchises you can take where you're not taking product risk um, and you can get wealthy how much money do you need million dollar every year you know that will give you a very good life in india if you do decide to start a company the question that you should ask is if i want to make money do i want to be the founder or i want to be co-founder with somebody else kind of doing it what you want to do is whatever you want you want to reduce the risk and they reduce the risk by picking up the right tool and right path to choose so that you are happy and you get what you want with the highest probability of happening it the doing a consumer startup the back angel startup <laughs> this for crazy people Mark Zuckerberg said no to billion dollar right when Yahoo wanted buys he is fighting with the US government today holding on to Facebook these are these are very different kind of people fortunately most of the people are sane in the world and think about in a very sane way like what in your life what is the priority money power fame independence and these are typical four things that i've seen you know if you want independence maybe not starting a business is probably what a very bad idea because you are responsible for everyone you have no free time for yourself so i think people need to make the right decision and pick up the right career option and not just blindly follow what everybody else is doing but if, if they do decide to become a founder of a venture back up very important for them to know who they are if this is what they will do whatever may happen they will go ram through concrete walls are okay not seeing their family for months okay 
okay being miserable okay being not receiving any acknowledgement anybody saying you did a good job ever uh, everybody always complaining the working day and night um, and at the end of the day still not making enough money you know that is when they should do it i think a lot of founders also follow the thesis the problem with the thesis is that out of everybody who is doing it two or three will be successful you being in that group is very unlikely uh, just statistically right it's not nothing against that person so the thesis companies fail quite rapidly versus something that you strongly feel about and you see the logic that this is a large market you know this is opportunity is going to be there this is a differentiation is good stuff that end up happening so think deeply about the idea that that people work on besides of course trying to be a founder itself i mean it's, if it is fake right founding journey will figure it out very quickly believe me That was Amrish Gupta taking us through his journey from the streets of Kanpur to the mecca of management consulting to starting India's very first cloud telephony SaaS company and eventually settling in his current role of a private equity investor. The one thing that you should take away from this journey is that you should embrace failure because. It really is the best teacher. Then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books and drama. Visit thepodium.in that is T-H-E-P-O-D-I-U-M dot I-N for a complete list of all our shows. This was an HD Smartcast original. HD Smartcast. Log on to hdsmartcast.com to listen to more such podcasts.